Hey, so good news. The Feisty Women's Performance Summit is back for its second year in 2022. I don't know about you, but at Feisty, we're pretty sick of the predatory BS that we've observed in the fitness industry. The quote unquote women's market is a target for fad diets, miracle workouts, and the usual shrink it and pink it marketing bunk. So enter the Feisty Women's Performance Summit, where we're going to bring together information you can trust so you can learn, grow, and succeed by working with your female physiology, not against it. It's not about standing on a podium, although we all know that some of us will. It's about being able to do the things we love throughout our lives. This year's virtual summit will take place March 25th to 27th, and you'll get three days of education, demonstrations, and inspiration from top-of-the-class vetted professionals who will provide you with the knowledge you need to reach your goals. And if you can't make the summit on the weekend, the replays will be available for you all year long. So head on over to womensperformance.com to get all the deets. That's womensperformance.com. The link will be in the show notes. I hear you were traveling, Shauna, and this time you were not traveling for a triathlon or a marathon. Right. I got to leave my bike at home, my running shoes, <laughs> and, and that's about it. I, I did throw some resistance bands in my bag just to be guilt-free as I was traveling, but that's about it, right? Okay. Um, but yeah, but I spent a week in Charleston, South Carolina, which I had never visited before, which is pretty rare um, that I haven't visited a city entirely. Um, but yeah, I went to Charleston, South Carolina for uh, seven days and, you know, going during Black History Month, going where there's so much rich history of Africans and African-Americans there. It was just overwhelming. Like you could just weep the entire time you're there, but also be proud at the same time. It was just, it was a very emotional trip, definitely an emotional trip. So lots of things to see. I wish I could have stayed for another week to take in more, but it was incredible. Well, I'm thinking there's probably a lot to learn from your trip and I bet we can tie it to endurance sports. So do you want to give that a try? Oh, here we go, y'all. Building the plane as we fly quite literally to Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, let me tell you, you know, traveling from DC, you can actually get anywhere, you know, you can almost get anywhere on a direct flight. You don't even have to uh, get a um, exchange anywhere. Like for example, one of the flights that I was looking at from BWI went from Baltimore to Atlanta to Charleston. I'm like, absolutely not. Uh, Right. Exactly. Like the, (laughs) the layover was longer than the flight directly from Reagan to Charleston. Um, But I will say, you know, I so appreciate the complex history of Charleston. I've talked to several friends of mine who were born and raised there. And I just, I'm impressed by how they own the impact of Africans, African-Americans, and just the entire institution of slavery over the city. It's just 
as soon as you get off the plane, you already see the impact of African-Americans there. It's just undeniable. And I wonder what other cities, states, areas, you know, how would that change the landscape of the country if folks did things similarly as Charleston? So for you, the difference was that you had a community that kind of unabashedly claimed their their history and their involvement in the oppression mm. of African-Americans, African people. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. They, they claimed it. They, there was no machine or concerted effort to erase it <laughs> or paint over it. It was very clear in part of everything from the time I stepped off the plane to the time I got back on. Um, you know, one of the things that was so powerful, even as I'm, you know, trying to go get a bag and go to the rental car area, um, the first thing that I noticed was a memorial of uh, Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, which many of you may remember um, in summer of 2015, the murderer and what I would say the terrorist, um, Dylan Storm Ruth, walked into a Bible study on a Wednesday night, sat there with them in prayer and worship, and then murdered nine African Americans, including the pastor of the church, who's also a state. Uh, state congressperson. And so given that, that was the first thing you saw when you got off the plane. Wow. And I wasn't even close enough to read the words, but I could tell by the stained glass window that was kind of created there, installed there, it was the exact replica of the church. And so I knew exactly what the sentiments were. And so, you know, the sorrow around that, you know, and understanding the meaning of that church and the history that that church carries and, you know, what it means to still see and feel and experience in cold blood racism directly in your face. Right. I mean, that, that, like, as soon as I got off the plane, it was, it was pretty heavy. That is interesting that it would greet people, right? Because you got to think that a city is not probably wanting to advertise their kind of history of racist mass murder um, for travelers, right? Especially if tourism is a big deal, which I imagine it is in uh, Charleston. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I have to give them props for that. Um, Yeah. And I I agree with you, Shauna. I am thinking about Denver and I'm thinking about Mm. Colorado. Mm -hmm. And there are certain pieces or places rather where I think there is acknowledgement. Um, uh, the University of Denver is, is uh, the, well, I'm going to get this wrong, I think, but a founder or someone connected to the founders involved in the founding of the University of Denver was involved in um, a massacre of Native American indigenous peoples. And for mm. the longest time, the University of Denver had kind of washed over that. Um, and mm. at least in the last five or six years, there's been a much more explicit acknowledgement of the university's history as it relates to that and committees formed. And I don't think they're just for show. Like, I think there's been some work done and not super connected with it. But, but you know, in terms of that recognition, it's pockets. And what I hear you saying right. is that it's the whole city. It was everywhere, everywhere you went. 
Yeah, it, it was it was truly everywhere. And I was, you know, in that region. So, you know, given that I went all the way from the coast back into the city. So, um, for example, going out to Sullivan's Island, which is the largest disembarkment of enslaved people in the country, in the colonies. To me, that was profound that, you know, you're going out to the coast, you're going out to see the water. And the very first thing you see once you get on the grounds of Sullivan's Island were historical signage noting where there were mass graves of Africans that either did not make it or they um, were buried there over time, knowing that you literally could not go anywhere without seeing something in reference to Africans or African-Americans. To me, I'm like, this is overwhelming and Part of me is obviously sad because this is part of my history as an African-American. But then, too, part of me was weirdly proud because I'm like, thank you. Let's, you know, not buy into the, oh, let's just act like it didn't happen or let's just kind of whisper over it and keep moving on. You know, I'm I'm thinking to myself, you know, thank you, city of Charleston, for your candor. Right. Because, you know, I think that's a great way to have this 180 viewpoint of life and history that, you know, we can't really progress forward unless we truly acknowledge where we've been and what we've done and what we've experienced. I mean, it's, it was in the land, it was in the food, it was in the, you know, the architecture, it was everywhere. It was truly everywhere. How do you think um, South Carolinians, I think is how you say it, um, people who live in Charleston, Charlestonites, (laughs) um, Uh you know, particularly white Charlestonites, um, I just made that up, (laughs) react to the explicit nature of this um, representation of this um, truth? Mm, Well, you know, that's a great question. I'm not quite sure because let me tell you what I noticed. Um, So, for example, the first full day I was there, I visited what's called Ryan's Market. And it has signage over top um, that says the Old Slave Mart, which was one of the largest um, slave markets in the city. There were several, uh, but this was one of the largest ones in the city. And it was the longest um, longest active slave market, um, one of the largest. And what I found really interesting was that as I'm visiting and looking at the exhibits and literally there's exposed brick on the walls where you can touch your hands to the brick that was surrounding enslaved people. And I'm looking around and the majority of the people that are walking through this damn museum look like you and don't look like me. Hmm. Oh, this is interesting. So I wonder if you all are native Charlestonians, we're we're making up a word, are you native Charlestonians or are you tourists just like I am, you know? Um, And so that was kind of interesting to me. And, you know, as you're leaving, you know, no one's going to say, you know, we hope you enjoyed this exhibit, you know, as you're leaving, they, you know, they were saying to us, we, we hope that you learned more about the experience of this city. Yeah. which, Which I thought was really profound. And so, you know, to me, it was, it was solemn and it was important. And a lot of the places where I went, there were many more white folks than people of color that I saw. Um, and, you know, I, I just hope that it was not held at arm's length of, oh, this is just air quote history. But no, this was an actual 
actual experience of actual people. And we're not just here to study wars. We're here to study human beings, you know, and their lives here. So that, that the, the difference in race, as I visited some of these locations was very pronounced, very pronounced. Yeah. And I'm also, I'm not familiar with what's happening in South Carolina regarding censorship, you know, our, our previous um, conversation and it, that would be an interesting juxtaposition, right? If you have this explicit acknowledgement of the history of racism and slavery in the state, while at the same time, school boards across the state are trying to eliminate discussions of racism and slavery mm. and certain books that reference those issues, right? Absolutely. Well, that was one of the first things I thought about as I was leaving that I wish I had asked more about. Um, and maybe I needed to coordinate more with. Um, K through 12 educators, but that's one thing that I thought, you know, was interesting. What is being taught as part of their state history, U.S. history, local history, and, you know, what's being included because so much of it originated there. And so it's, it would be hard to teach state history without teaching the legacy of slavery. Like you almost couldn't teach it if you yeah. didn't have the legacy of slavery. So I, I need to connect with some K through 12 folks in South Carolina to get a better handle of that. But you're you're right on it. Right. Yeah. On it. Yeah. I mean, you're saying they couldn't teach it without teaching the history of slavery. I bet there are people that would say they absolutely could teach it without the history. Mm. Of slavery, right? Well, yeah, 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 they yeah. they could. But, you know, I'm, I'm like, OK, what would be left? You know what? What would be left to discuss other than you know, military wars, you know, but, but you're right because people talk about the civil war all the time and never once bring up slavery, never once bring up race, never once bring up any of that. So you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. That was about state, state rights, right? Mm, Exactly. There you go. There you go. Um, Well, and of course, I mean, you know, I do know that, you know, I'm not quite sure of censorship of books in South Carolina. But what I do know is that, you know, they're having a similar conversation about critical race theory. I do know that already. So, you know, that that has been going on. And there's a few bills um, on the state floor. I think it's four or five bills on the state floor right now that in some way reference critical race theory. Now, you and I know critical race theory has nothing to do with K through 12, but that's what they think, obviously. So there you are. I know that they believe it. I think it's just a lightning rod, right? And it gets people riled up. And I think half the time it's Mm -hmm. certainly an intentional move. But, you know, this piece that you're focusing on around the explicit nature of it, I think about that in the context of sport. I'm thinking about we're in the Olympics right now. Um, Yes. You know, and... Is, is there a sport or a sporting body that is dedicated to uncovering and talking about and actively um, you know, illuminating the history of racial and gender discrimination in the sport until to this day, still to this day, right? But at, at one point in our history across many countries, you know, sport of all kinds was just for white men. Yeah. And, you know, the the study of it and acknowledging it, you know, I just I don't know of anything that's going on to do that, you know. And so, you know, for us, we come from a higher ed background and we know what's going on in higher ed there where, you know, the University of Virginia pulled together a consortium that specifically wanted to study um, how 
they should really respond to a couple things, racism in their institutional histories, but also human bondage, you know, human trafficking and working and so forth. And so, you know, given that, I'm wondering alongside you if there could be an endurance sport equivalent of how has gender, gender and race directly been affected or affected or not endurance sport because we haven't looked at it. I I don't think we've looked deeply enough at it Um, and it's lingering challenges. And, you know, what if we had a consortium of federations that specifically looked at what was said and more so what has not been said or done in regards to gender equity, race equity, LGBT issues, uh, yeah, I, I think there's something to it and could be an equivalent there. Um, but that takes us, again, you know, facing what mm-hmm. we don't necessarily want to face, examining the silences that we don't want to examine. Yeah. yeah. It, it takes work. Yeah. And I think that there's this inherent um, underpinning of sport as the the thing I realize thing is not very articulate, but the thing that brings people together, right? Like, you know, everyone can play sport. Well, we've already talked about that on the podcast. Like that is a, that's an assumption and a little bit of a problematic statement because you're not thinking about all those historical contexts or physical barriers or, you know, barriers, but this Mm -hmm. idea that it's a human right, which I don't disagree with, but that, you know, harking back to our kumbaya episode right there's something about sport that's very kumbaya which makes me pause about whether such a consortium could even exist like would Mm. you know Mm -hmm. leaders across all types of sport be motivated um because of a worry that it would disrupt that um feeling or identity for sport which ultimately would hit their bottom line right i mean maybe that's just Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and what I think is powerful about what you're saying is that, oh, so it, it would require ownership, possibly even more so of what has not been done rather than what injustices have been done, you know, and, and owning that takes courage. It takes bravery and it's easy to ignore. It's very easy to ignore. You know, it, it's so easy to ignore the inequities. It's so easy to say, okay, USAT did their survey. That's the breakdown of demographics moving on. It's easy to do um, rather than digging up some of the roots of why is it the way it is and what's the trajectory um, and how has that really infiltrated sports? So, and what I'm thinking about, the visual I'm thinking about, Lisa, was um, in that um in Ryan's market, there was a map. I couldn't take any pictures in the museum. They didn't allow them. But in there, there was a map showing the regions and and areas, the countries of Africa on the continent of Africa and their trajectory over to South Carolina and other areas, of course. But it was showing a distinct map of the transatlantic slave trade and then where they dispersed all across the country. Okay. And my brain has me thinking about endurance sport. It's like, we don't have a map of where we went wrong from the beginning. We don't have a map of where people were excluded or people were treated badly, even though we could, if we took the time to own it and examine it, but 
an endurance sport, we just haven't done that. It's right. It's been more of let's face what's wrong today rather than digging up the history and facing what's wrong today. Right. Yeah. Mm, the, the, the problem has roots. And I'm sure there are like isolated sport historians in academic institutions across the country. I don't imagine there's thousands yeah. of them. There's probably like under a hundred. Um, right, right, right. You know, right. but then it's this silo piece. They're in an academic institution. Uh, how much are they engaging with sport federations or, you know, the IOC, things like that in terms of connecting the dots like this consortium of universities, right? Because I think that's the other piece right. where the dots aren't being connected. I mean, there's the piece where the individual athlete is not connecting the dots historically as to why there are so few folks of color or so few women, so folks with few folks with disabilities in sport now. Um, mm-hmm. But then you've also got that larger kind of macro piece around the individual sports and the kind of keepers of history, if you will, are not connecting right. the dots either. And maybe purposefully, I don't know what the intention is there, but. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So, okay. So I guess the next question, you know, for us to think about moving forward is who, who or what, or which federation or which sports are willing to own the exclusion of certain groups. And I I think you're right that there's some that are like, (laughs) you know, I know there have been historical problems, but I'm not willing to risk losing what I may have currently in order to dig up that history. And so I'd rather make it right from the top rather than from the root. And that's a shame. Yeah. yeah. It is. Cause I don't think you can really fix the top without going to the root. I mean, we talk about that a lot on an individual level, right? That you can't really um, disrupt the system until you really understand the ways in which you are complicit with the system or you have benefited yes. from the system. And so that yes. reflection piece comes first. And yes, then when you yes, step yes. it up from the individual to the team or to the community or to the federation or to endurance sport broadly, right? Yes. Um, I think it becomes that much easier to gloss over it because it becomes a little overwhelming and a little diffuse, mm. maybe like mm-hmm. the higher up you get. Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know what that would look like. Right. Because, yeah, you know, I guess the IOC is like the big global Olympic committee, but they have their problems. That's for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then thinking about that in the context of a particular country, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because what you're suggesting, right. Is that they're all coming together rather than triathlon doing their work, swimming doing their work, cycling doing their work, track and field doing their work, is that it's done collectively because those histories and futures are are integrated, right? That's right. That's right. They're so interwoven. And so, yeah, it's, well, Lisa, it reminds me of, because I I know I texted you while I was there. So one of the other sites um, while I was in Charleston, or actually not even in Charleston proper, um, Johns Island, um, which is kind of, on the outskirts there where it's more resort area and so forth. Um, On John's Island, there is uh, the Angel Oak, which is a huge tree um, that is owned by the city of Charleston. And I did my research before I got there. I looked at the photos and so forth. What I found so interesting is that, you know, of course there's a history to it. It was part of a plantation. Um, The tree, which 
to me is very sacred as a black person because um, sometimes that tree was used for church gatherings for enslaved people. Um, but also the very same tree was said to have been a place where um, enslaved people who did not please their masters were hung there. And so it was used for both um, good and bad amongst um, the enslaved population there. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because what you mentioned around root is that one of the things I noticed as I was looking at that tree was that um, they talked about it and had signage all around it. Don't sit on the roots. Don't place anything on the roots. Everything is fragile here. And it even had wiring and some wood that was in place to keep this very tall and wide tree stable. For me, that's like a huge analogy of what endurance sport could be. You know, we've got all these roots. They're very entangled. They're yeah. probably very fragile. Yeah. And at least for Angel Oak, people, I'm imagining arborists who study this and know exactly what they're doing as professionals, know what's needed to ensure that that tree does not fall and crumble and die. And what I found that was really interesting because I took close up pictures, I might have to share them with Lindsay, um, is that there was moss covering this entire tree, which meant that yes, the roots were fragile, but because of the moss, we knew that the tree was still healthy because dying trees don't produce moss. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so for me, I'm like, I feel like that's where we need to go with endurance sport, all these different federations coming together in a way that we know that our roots are both deep and the tree is wide when it comes to all the different sports that could be included under this umbrella. But we need to do some examination of these roots here because- I, I think right. when you have an understanding of the roots, then you understand how to grow and maintain the livelihood of your sport. Yeah. If you don't, it's going to die, period. Right. And so I, I just don't feel like we've done enough of that in-depth look at endurance sport proper. Um, so maybe Angel Oak can teach us some lessons on that, but I, I just don't think there's been a consortium that has done that type of deep work yeah. in order to make sure we live. And so then you and I sit here, pontificating on the podcast for months and months to come as to is our sport going to stay alive or not yeah yeah and, you know, and know. As, you're, as you're talking I'm thinking about how contextually different this is going to look in different countries and here in the U.S. obviously it, you've got the U.S. Yes. Olympic and Paralympic Committee it may have changed its name it may not be called that anymore but um, they don't have a great representation reputation right particularly around gender given everything that's come forth with sexual harassment and sexual assault so you know if they yes. were to kind of bring all the federations together the national governing bodies and say we want to create this um opportunity to really collectively understand and um express how sport has failed people i'm not sure mm. that they would have much credibility right and that's right. the other piece of it, I think. And then, right. you know, endurance sport is smaller, right? It's not all sport. It's just some sports, um, depending on, I guess, how you frame it. So then, you know, there's that piece too, because I think you have your, your big famous sports and they're not necessarily going to fall into the endurance mm. sport category. And so mm -hmm. if there's not exposure for some endurance sports, like, you know, ultra yeah. running, for example, I mean, it's, it's quote unquote famous ish, right. But it's not like right. really 
massive in terms of widespread exposure. So then there's also the capacity to hide, right? Like when you're not um, USA swimming or USA, Mm -hmm. right? Well, I don't know that I put gymnastics in endurance sport, but swimming, definitely marathon swimming, that sort of thing. But, you know, so I think there's also that dynamic that's happening here. And because it's so big and there's so many, it's very easy to kind of like just hide behind the curtain, like, you know, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's easy to ignore. So I, I guess I would say, Lisa, as a, you know, as a conclusion to my trip, even though there was so much more that I saw and experienced while I was there, you know, my big piece, I would say, is that, you know, I do think that we may need to come together and examine together without uh, duplicating efforts, examine together what's been the history of endurance sport and bring those few scholars that have done that work together and see what we find out. What, what do we put together? What are the roots of what we're doing? Because I fear that if we don't look at what's going on, our future is, is in peril. Let me put it that way. Yeah, for sure. I would agree. So, all right. Are we ready for a hell yeah to hell no? I think we are. Hell yeah. Hell no. So, well, I feel like, I feel like Charleston, South Carolina should get another shout out for a little bit of a hell yeah there. Um, given your experience mm-hmm. and that it formed the basis of our podcast. But I heard on the radio yeah. yesterday that uh, M&Ms, as in the chocolate candy, not the wrapper. Yeah, not the wrapper. We, yeah, we, are, we have that confusion. Um, they, uh, if you think about the cartoon mascots that they have in the commercials, right? So there's the peanut one and the chocolate one, and they do a whole lot of funny things with that. So um, M&M's, um, which I, I think is Mars, right? The parent company are going to um, make them more gender neutral. So, for instance, wow. the um, characters that you would read as women um, have high heels on and long eyelashes and things like that. And so they're going to shift that representation. Um, they, I, the, I didn't actually know this, but what they had said on the radio was the two, um, there's, I think, two main women M&Ms. <laughs> And I guess they are in a rivalry together. So it's kind of pulling on some tropes around cattiness and that women don't support women and stuff like that. I've not like gone down the big M&M cartoon character rabbit hole that there probably is, but this is what the radio show is doing. So I think that that's really an important piece. And I found an article where um, someone from, uh, so the global vice president said, we took a deep look at our characters both inside and out and have evolved their looks, personalities and backstories to be more representative of the dynamic and progressive world we live in. So, um, you know, so I feel like that's kind of cool. It's silly, I guess, but I think it's a little something and we all Absolutely. get about gender from different places. So young kids probably love the M&M cartoons. And so maybe this mm. will on how they think about gendered behaviors. So yes, like yes, yes, yes. Hell, hell yeah for M&Ms. Look, I'm, I need to run out here and get some peanut M&Ms or something here in support because I'm, I'm loving that. And, and I'm appreciating that on the heels of, uh, no pun intended, the heels of Minnie Mouse um, that we talked about previously too in the, the attire change. I think that's pretty interesting. So 
Yeah. Good for y'all, M&Ms. Um, Didn't we have an M&Ms feature? Wasn't it a Hell No one time around? Well, see, that one was Skittles. Oh, with the, the, the rainbow. Yeah. Okay. Where they went completely white in the packaging. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That, okay. Actually, I thought about that when you brought up M&Ms too. I'm like, oh, look at this. This is interesting. Yeah. Um, and I would just interject because we're still in Black History Month. Just one quick hell gnaw, if you don't mind. Um, the hell gnaw is around the numerous bomb threats that have been happening to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Um, I don't have a complete list, but I do know of a few because I do have friends and colleagues and family members who are either alumni or, um, or professors or administrators there. Um, So there's been at least 16 uh, Spelman college. Uh, My training partner is an alum as well as um, uh, Heather uh, McTeer Tony, who has been on our podcast before. She is also an alum. Um, this really scares me and saddens me that so many um, schools, historically Black schools, where Black students choose to study, have been targeted. That's ridiculous. Um, Spelman has been targeted. Howard University has been targeted here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Jackson State has received threats. Apparently, the FBI is uh, has identified some suspects and they're investigating these incidents as hate crimes. Um, we don't know, or at least I don't know of any arrests that have been made yet. But I think it's very interesting that these bomb threats started on the very first day of Black History Month in the United States. Problematic, targeted, shame on you. Um, I identify as a Black person, but I did not attend any uh, historically Black colleges and universities for my degrees. However, I'm staunchly in support of students, faculty, staff, safety. Um, this is problematic. Hell no. Nah. Whoever is doing whatever, I yeah. I pray that um, the, the field offices of the FBI continue yeah. to uh, find, what, find out what's going on and, and handle that appropriately and quickly, because that is just ridiculous foolishness. Yes. Well, again, I would use stronger words than foolishness, which I realize is your your way <laughs> of uh, suggesting something very stern. Um, and that's yeah, that's effed up. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's ridiculous. And we know it's targeted. We know it yeah. for a number of reasons, but especially due to this time during the calendar year where we are yeah. to celebrate black ex- excellence and you're targeting black excellence. Yeah straight up foolishness. So yeah. shame on you. Shame okay. on you. And another example of why racism is not dead in this country and we have to pay attention to it and we have to pay attention to it in every facet of our lives even if it's ugly to do so, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are not post racism at all in this country. Not at all. So thank you for bringing that up. All right. I think we got another one on the books, Lisa. We uh, have built the plane as we flew once again. And um, thank you for listening to my ramblings of Charleston. And um, I'm hoping to go back. um, But yeah, if you're going to Charleston anytime soon, just know that the food is so good and so rich. You will only eat once a day. How about that? Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. 
Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code feisty for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty.